0: I was tired of everything being heavy. I wanted something lighter, Hancock said. With that in mind, the keyboardist shed his former backing band, as well as all guitars, and recorded this Miles meets Sly Stallone masterpiece, a peak of the jazz fusion movement, highlighted by Chameleon and Watermelon Man, from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. You're listening to Chasing Rolling Stones, and this is episode number three, featuring Headhunters by Herbie Hancock. everyone to episode number three of Chasing Rolling Stones. This is Kyle coming to you from beautiful Glendale, California at the base of the San Gabes. I want to thank you all for joining me on another week as we open up the rock and roll vault and discover another record from Rolling Stone Magazine's top 500 greatest albums of all time list. Now last week we visited Cook County Jail in Chicago to listen to B.B. King Rock the Big House and in this week's show, we're going to stay in that decade of the 70s and get a little funky. As always, I leave a clue at the end of each episode to give a sneak peek for those wanting to know what we'd be focusing on in the next show. Wonder, did any of you get this one? think my clue was, hard bop takes an electric turn with sly synthetic grooves hidden like a chameleon within an old classic. Now, I'm going to tell you this episode is going to be a blast as we head into jazz territory for the first time. We're talking about Herbie Hancock's Headhunters, an electric masterpiece that features the incredible Chameleon, you may have noticed that in the Clue, as well as his hit Watermelon Man, which updated a classic from 1962 with synths and new rhythms of the jazz fusion style. That was also our old classic in the Clue. Oh, and by the way, there are no guitars at all, but don't worry, this album has plenty packed in it to give you everything you could want. An important to note to share before we get too deep into Headhunters, those of you following along with the blog already know this tidbit, but for those unaware, I am basing this podcast and each episode off of Rolling Stone Magazine's Greatest Albums of All Time, 2005 book that was published by Wenner Book. The resource and my roadmap to the show was obviously published before Rolling Stone revised their list in 2012. That revision brought in much more contemporary albums under that banner of the 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. So, if you were to go online right now to rollingstone.com, you would probably find a completely different album filling the slot of 498. It might be MGMT, it might be The White Stripes, I don't know, but don't worry. My plan is to cover all 500 albums from this book first, then, God willing, I'm still around, sweep back around in the future to include those 40 or so that were added later on. And believe me, I really want to get to those. I have some great hits, uh, including Kanye and uh, quite a few others. Now, also another tidbit before we go on with the show. There is something I really want to kick off Uh, Maybe something I'll do every week, but, you know, at least this week I have something good for you. And that's a recommendation for the episode. Now, if you're like me, you probably recently re-upped with HBO for the new seasons of Game of Thrones. If that is the case, I want to absolutely make sure you don't miss the channel's newest documentary, The Defiant Ones. Now, I've only gotten through episode two, but man, it is an interesting watch to say the least. It's a documentary that follows both music producer Jimmy Iovine and the one and only Dr. Dre. Uh, And the first two episodes I've watched charts their separate success, kind of following both along their path, which I'll grant it, you know, I've seen a lot of Dr. Dre's history through various VH1 Behind the Musics and other music documentaries. But what's interesting is I had no clue that Iovine was, I mean, such the hit maker that he was. I mean, we are talking about a run of him producing Springsteen, Patti Smith, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Stevie Nicks, and U2. And this is all before we even get to the 90s. So he was a man obsessed with music, doing the best, creating the best, creating the absolute most amazing albums of all time. And in accordance to the show, it seemed like a fitting recommendation to talk about is we will probably see many of his albums hit our top 500 list. So again, just something I wanted to share with you all and throw my support behind. So with uh, our notes out of the way and our news section done, let's go ahead and start the show. Ken Burns so eloquently stated in his brilliant documentary, Focused on the Genre, Jazz has been called the purest expression of American democracy, a music built on individualism and compromise, independence and cooperation. Now, if you haven't seen this 10-part series, I would highly recommend it. Again, another recommendation. But as with all Burns docs, it is filled with amazing interviews, photos, and sound bites from deep within the archives, and a narrative structure that makes you feel like you're listening to a bedtime story. Now, whether you've seen the series or not, you must understand that jazz, as a genre, has had a rich, diverse history, constantly changing and course-correcting with each decade. We can't just start with the jazz fusion movement from 1970 to understand Herbie Hancock's Headhunters. No, we have to look back and see where fusion fits on that jazz timeline in order to acknowledge why Hancock made the choices he did on the album to create this modern masterpiece. I took the following info from an amazing resource called Jazz in Time. It's an interactive timeline provided by the Kennedy Center's website, and I highly recommend checking it out. As I was going along that website, you know, you discover that the roots of jazz have their beginning before even the 20th century begins. Ragtime, blues, and brass band music in the late 1800s provide the blueprint elements such as a syncopated beat, which stresses the upbeat instead of the downbeat, as well as the tools in which it would be played, like the brass instruments. As America moved into the new millennium, societal changes would build upon these stylings. As we turn into the next century, large population of African-Americans begin migrating from the South to the North, landing in cities like New York and Chicago. Once settled, these individuals bring their regional stylings to the music scene, which also sets the stage for a distinct genre to emerge by the late 1920s. This era was eventually defined as the Jazz Age. However, by 1930s, the Great Depression turned the world upside down. This would not harm jazz though. Although people could not buy records or go to shows, the radio provided the genre an even larger audience, lifting society's spirits with an upbeat and energetic sound that harkened back to the 20s, a style that would ultimately be called swing. The 1940s would bring further change with World War II. Swing was out and bebop was in, shifting jazz music from dance halls into a more challenging musician's music. Another stylistic shift would occur in the following decade as many jazz players would become educated thanks to the GI Bill, allowing them to study classical musical theory. This intellectual angle of playing music led to the creation of hard bop and cool jazz that would dominate the 1950s. As with all of society, The 60s marked a new direction, not only for where society was going, but also really music. Attempting to mirror the activism around them, jazz musicians attempted to break down or extend the conventions of jazz through the free jazz, modal, and neo-gospel styles that used no preconceived rhythms, harmonies, or little to no composition at all. Rather, it was a bunch of musicians that would improvise complete pieces beginning to combine their music with the exotic sounds from Indian Asia, almost reminiscent of what the Beatles were experimenting with at the time. The 70s is where we turn our attention to today. At this point in the timeline, increased communication and technology had made the world smaller, providing musicians with influences of global culture and lifestyles, allowing them to create a fusion of world, classical and popular music like rock and disco. Fusion jazz, as best exemplified by Herbie Cancock's Headhunters, was at the forefront of the genre from 1969 through 1990. The style was created, at least in part, because jazz musicians wanted to capitalize on the popular appeal of rock music, which had skyrocketed into another atmosphere in terms of commercial success. From rock, fusion gets its power, rhythm, and simplicity. Electric instruments, like electric guitars, basses, and keyboard synthesizers, began to replace the staples like the trumpet, standing bass and saxophone. To a degree it worked, many rock fans who were not into quote, regular jazz, did support fusion artists. They bought the records, they attended their concerts. However, many traditional jazz musicians and fans did not consider fusion real jazz, those snobs. Prior to the development of Headhunters, Herbie Hancock's discography up to that point could best be described as a string of classic acoustic jazz recordings. Hancock had found success with Imprian Isle, Maiden Voyage, and Speak Like a Child, but it wasn't until he switched labels to Warner Brothers, where he began his flirtation with electronics. By 1972, Herbie felt that he had reached peak with his current band and was ready to connect with a larger audience. I began to feel that I had been spending so much time exploring the upper atmosphere of music and the more ethereal kind of far out spacey stuff. Now there was this need to take some more of the earth and to feel a little more tethered, a connection to earth. I started thinking about Sly Stone and how much I loved his music and how funky thank you for letting me be myself is, he said. He would go on to say, would I like to have a funky band that played the kind of music Sly or someone like that was playing? My response was, actually, yes. And so, Hancock moved on from the Mwandishi Band and created a new group of creative individuals called the Headhunters, a group of seven musicians who could play a wide range of instruments, but more specifically, electronics. Their opening output would go on to be the first certified gold jazz album in history, Headhunters. The album was released on October 26, 1973 and it actually only contains four tracks. But it was groundbreaking the moment it hit shelves, a true fusion of styles, combining elements of jazz, R&B, funk, and African music. About the creation of the album, Hancock says he found great inspiration and freedom in the music of James Brown and Sly Stone, seeking to incorporate some of funk's distinct sounds and rhythms into his group. Now, as we drop the needle and start with side one, The album opens with what I consider a grand slam. And what's interesting about the record in total is you only have four tracks. So every single one needs to be amazing to quantify the greatness that is this album. And I believe it actually succeeds in that. Now the first song, like I said, is a grand slam and that is what would go on to be the single Chameleon. It's the track that kicks off the record with an electric bass line that will never leave your head once heard. (laughs) This is played repeatedly, and it just doesn't leave your head. On top of that, as it continues on for a few about a minute, I think, all of a sudden you hear the trumpets In full disclosure, in eighth grade, my jazz band tried to play this record or this this track and uh, I had such a blast playing it, but at the end of the day, I can fully recognize now that there is no way in this earth that we did this song any justice. But I'm pretty sure I had a sweet uh, tenor sax solo out of it, so all was not lost. Anyway, that line, that bass line that I highly recommend or highly talk up, that is actually Hancock himself playing that line on an ARP Odyssey analog synthesizer. This instrument had just recently been introduced in 1972 and it really makes the record. The song runs nearly 16 minutes long and is filled with complex interstellar solos that take your eardrums to another dimension. Like I said, Chameleon was the breakout single for the album, and to help with sales, a 2 minute and 50 second version was released that would go on to crack the Billboard Hot 100 chart and reach a peak position of 42 in 1974. Which it's not too shabby for a jazz musician at what is I consider the height of hard rock with artists like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath going at it. An even greater gift is found also on side one, which is track two, Watermelon Man. Like I said in the intro, this song was previously featured on Hancock's 1962 album Taken Off, and it drew on his 1940s childhood in Chicago listening to jazz musicians. However, in the Headhunters version, it would get a substantial upgrade, with an immediate rearrangement of the structure, turning the previous version into a tribal electric deep funk groove. It starts with percussionist Bill Smers blowing into a beer bottle in a style reminiscent of Central Africa. Nearly a minute goes by before the bass line comes into the background, followed by the drums, giving a bat beat that you could pretty much find in any hip hop artist repertoire today. You can still feel some of that initial inspiration from the 62 version, but really, all references have been modernized. It's almost as if Herbie Hancock picked out a new BMW model that he was very familiar with and he had an amazing upgrade a decade later. Flipping the vinyl over to slide two, we open with Sly, which is a nice reference to the man and band who inspired Hancock to progress into this funk realm itself. It starts almost orchestral. I was picking up allusions to Miles Davis's sketches of Spain not sure what you think but as soon as you think you're grounded to that plane on earth there's an improvisation that shoots you off into outer space on a rocket with frenzied electric sound that constantly keeps you guessing as to where the music is going the album closes with my favorite vain melter and how great of a title is that really it's almost as if the music has Invaded your body and it is turning you out from the inside It starts out slow with a steady bass drum beat with kind of a funky swagger before a cool sax sweeps in Slowly whispering on the wind and creating this magical soundscape highlighted by beeps and blurps of electronica whirling around you like stardust a soft wave of synths carries you away with a hi-hat crashing like an ocean wave below you It's a gentle and wonderful conclusion that caps off an incredible ride that is Headhunters. In fact, despite the earworms that are Chameleon and Watermelon, this really is my favorite track of the album and I just love the way it concludes the whole entire journey. It really is an entry point into this mystical, softer realm of funk, a psychedelic port of entry to a new styling of jazz. I listen to this song and all I wanna do is play it in the background as I'm watching fantastical imagery, perhaps something like The Dark Crystal or Fire and Ice. That would be pretty rad. Leaving a groundbreaking legacy, Headhunters is now considered one of the defining moments in not only fusion, but jazz history as well. The Library of Congress even opted to preserve the album in its musical collection as one of the country's most significant audio recordings. With its distinct sound and rhythms, Hancock elevated the jazz platform, creating art that was accessible not only to fans, but the genre, bringing in a whole new audience who had appreciated his sound. The album would go on to pave the way for electronic music and hip-hop style, changing the way people heard music by opening the door to new musical soundscapes and possibilities. Now, as always, we conclude our episode with the vinyl segment of the week. And if you haven't seen this cover before, really get out. Even just Google it. It is a trip of uh, imagery and colors. It's psychedelic in the extreme, all of it adorning the cover of Herbie Hancock's Headhunters. Now what's really cool is the image that's on the cover, which kind of is the band with all their instruments, but with one change, uh, it has Herbie, who's on the keys, adorned with this African mask. And if I did my research right, Kapili picapili mask of the Baule tribe from the Ivory Coast. Now, this image and color scheme and all of it was created by and designed by Victor Moscoso, who's a Spanish-American artist best known for producing rock posters and advertisement in San Francisco during the 60s and 70s. In fact, he actually created posters for the Grateful Dead, The Doors, and Steve Miller Blues Bands, uh, just a few artists who utilized his vibrant colors and designs. Moscoso is actually a pretty famous uh, artist within this realm, and I'm sure if you've ever seen any of the famous uh, 60s or 70s posters, you've probably seen either his work or certainly you know references and uh, connections to what he was doing. Now what's cool in that mask I was telling you about, uh, not only is it in the shape of that Ivory Coastal tribe, but the actual design of the mask is based on a tape head demagnetizer, which is also used on real to reel audio tape recording equipment at the time when Headhunters was recorded, which is kind of a, a nice inside uh, look into the process. You flip the album onto the back and we get the same exact image uh, except this time Herbie is not wearing the mask. But what's cool is he, Moscoso actually flips the color scheme where it's burning bright red fire with Herbie with his band The Headhunters behind him in cool blue, but on the back they are all kind of conversely contrasted all together in the same brilliant neon pink color. Again, all of the artists are just holding their instruments as if they are their choice weapon chosen for battle. It's an absolute uh, trip to to see this photography. Now let's see, uh, I think I am spinning, if I looked on Discogs right, the 180 gram 2009 reissued and remastered vinyl from Columbia Records. Uh, It was recorded at uh, Wally Heider Studios as well as Different Fur Trading Company, both of which are in San Francisco, which makes that connection to the artist Marcoso so uh, right on. And as I was doing research on both of these studios, uh, a lot of great artists passed through those doors. You know, CCR was a big one. Boz Skaggs was another War. I mean, so many artists kind of made their way through the San Francisco area, which was very cool. And it was produced by David Rubinson, who worked with Herbie Hancock quite a bit, and Herbie uh, also did some producing as well. Now, once again, I picked this vinyl up at the expansive, the wonderful, the amazing Amoeba Music in Hollywood, right off of Sunset Boulevard itself. It certainly is my hometown record store. as always, I recommend a visit. Well, everyone, that concludes Episode 3, Headhunters. Thanks again for listening to Chasing Rolling Stones. Uh, If you do have a comment, a suggestion, please do not hesitate to email the show at either ChasingRollingStones at gmail.com, or you can actually visit the website www.ChasingRollingStones.com where you'll find a way to email the show, as well as my blog, which has a little bit more info on each of the albums featured in the episode. I'll also throw up photos, links, and sources all onto that side as well. And please don't forget, for those not wanting to dive a little deeper, but just some quick hits, we are also on social, where you can find the show at both Twitter and Instagram at the handle at chasing underscore a big thank you to Blank and Kit for the theme song for the show, RSPN, as well as this week's backing music provided by Ryan Little. As always, I would like to thank my amazing significant other, Leslie, for all of her support and encouragement in my, following my passions, She's actually the first person to send me a note uh, off the blog and uh, continually ask me, where's the show, where's the show? And so she keeps me honest and keeps me at this product also like to send a special thank you to rolling stone magazine as always for inspiring this show we'll see you all next week as we take a closer look at number 497 on the list and here's your going away clue a late 80s bloom introduces a granite flower from manchester thanks everyone hope you have a great week